0: Um, We're going back to Nehemiah. Um, It's been a joy to be looking at the book of Nehemiah from the Old Testament over a number of weeks. We rejoined the story um, this afternoon, having had a little uh, break for Pentecost uh, last Sunday. We rejoined the story at a point of crisis in the rebuilding uh, project. It's not actually a crisis relating to the building work per se, Um, So if you look at the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 6, you'll see that by then uh, uh, Nehemiah is saying that he's rebuilt the wall, there's no gap left in it, the gates are up, all that remains is for the doors to be inserted into the gates. So the project is going really well, that's not the locus, that's not the uh, location for the crisis The crisis is located in the fact that we're probably 12 years in here to the project. (laughs) Imagine that. So we've kind of, we've zoomed forward quickly from chapter four into chapter five. Um, The project is nearly completed, um, but there's a crisis that relates to the fact that the people who've been building the wall have not been paid. (laughs) Uh, They were volunteers in the full sense of that word that they'd given of themselves to this immense project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem without any personal remuneration. And the consequences of that were severe. They were severe at a personal level, and we'll look at that in a bit more detail. Lots of pain for these individuals and for their families. Um, But also, a culture had emerged over that 12-year period in which the rich seem to be rewarded and the poor seem to be punished. Uh, That's the locus, that's the focus of the crisis that Nehemiah uh, is addressing. So here's a people who'd given everything to the project. Twelve years, imagine that, a builder. Um, And if you weren't building, you were guarding. And you were certainly on watch for Sambalat and and Tobiah and all the rest of them, the opponents. And you'd given every ounce of energy, but with huge collateral damage. And actually, we have to say that Nehemiah doesn't come out of this story uh, covered in glory. Uh, Where had his focus been for those long 12 years? Well, his focus had been... He says it himself in this passage, he was devoted to the rebuilding of the wall. And by golly, don't we need intentional leaders who are focused on the rebuilding, on the project. But he doesn't come out covered in glory because it looks as if he was so focused on the project that he didn't know what was happening to his people. His eyes were on the wall rather than on the people within the walls. Does that make sense? And because his focus was so drivenly, attritionally on the rebuilding of the wall, there was immense personal damage in the lives of the builders, and a whole culture had emerged within Jerusalem that simply was not good and was not godly. And it's rather like sometimes we get a sore or a boil or something and we live with it for a while until suddenly it erupts. It breaks through the surface of the skin and that's what's happening here. Something had kind of potted along and there's a reference to the famine. We don't know anything more about that. But did something happen in this particular year that brought to the surface All of these things that had been kind of um, underneath the surface, unhealthy stuff that was going on, and the famine brought it to the fore, and it erupted, um, and it might be useful to have your Bible if you've got it with you, beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, with a great outcry. Now, we're living in a year and a time where we've heard great outcries on the issues of race, on the issues of gender. We kind of know what an outcry looks like. And here are the very people who built the wall in a great outcry. And this chapter five, um, and I thought, yet again, Matt's done it, hasn't he? He's given me a really difficult chapter. (laughs) Okay, Uh, here we are. In this chapter, I think we see a dawning realisation for Nehemiah that he had to invest, not just in a wall, not just in a project, but in the people who lived inside the wall. Now, let me tell you what preaching is. Preaching is not somebody standing up in front of a congregation telling you what I think. That is not preaching. Preaching is releasing the word of God. And the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And when the Word of God is released, it will go right into the issues of the lives of both the preacher and the hearers. So I'm going to ask you, I'm I'm not going to do much application of this. But I am going to ask that the Holy Spirit applies this to your life, maybe where your project has become so so all-consuming as a focus in your life that you've lost touch with your wife, your husband, your family, your colleagues, your church, because you've not looked to the right or to the left. And I think what we see in this chapter is Nehemiah taking corrective action. I've read two... um, uh, internet articles about Australia this week, the first I was sharing with Matt and Emily earlier, which was about um, what do you call it? Uh, it, it? A plague is the word I 'm looking for, Thank you, Emily. A plague of mice. Anybody else see that <laughs> that's spreading through Southeast Australia with the most horrendous uh, pictures. Go and search it out on the Internet if you want to scare yourself. But the second article I read was, ba- was about an aircraft, an airline pilot falling asleep, would you believe, for 40 minutes, and bypassing his landing destination, his airport, by 120 miles. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, and guess what? He had to take corrective action, which involved actually a 180-degree turn, and coming in rather shamefacedly. And... I think they'd even sent um, fighter aircraft up to try and wake him up, and they couldn't wake him up. But he took corrective action, and I think that's actually exactly what we see um, Nehemiah doing here. So if Nehemiah has lost a bit of glory in our eyes because he hasn't seen the problem sooner... Let's be, sure, be careful. We don't sort of idolise Nehemiah. He has made a significant leadership error here. But if he's lost a bit of glory in our eyes as we recognise that, um, I think he regains it in the way in which he responds to the crisis. And I'm just going to point to three things that I think are commendable. Uh, in Nehemiah um, that are lessons perhaps not only for leaders but for church communities and dare I say perhaps even lessons for us here at Telford Minster because we've got a big project Uh, we've got a wall to build but we're a people on a journey together so here's the three and I'll try and be as quick as possible but I'm going to try and try and root the message in the passage that's in front of us. The first thing is, I think, that he responded to the problems when he became aware of them. He responded to the problems when he became aware of them. And I think there's a persistent issue in churches that too often problems are unattended. That too often problems arise and we push them under the carpet rather than addressing them for what they are and tackling them under God and with all the provision um, of God's uh, wisdom. I don't know whether you're following uh, all the fuss in the Diocese of Winchester at the moment, uh, where the diocesan bishop has been asked to step back with a view to resigning uh, because, apparently, his treatments of clergy and others within the diocese... Now, I'm not going to exercise any, any statement of whether that's right or wrong at one level it's very disturbing at another level maybe this is that people have had the courage to recognize there is a problem and that therefore the problem needs to be addressed and I've been in church life long enough to know just how easy it is to push problems under the carpet to not address them Uh, relational issues, a whole range of stuff. And even as we look at the church nationally, to see huge issues that you have to call a problem, (laughs) like the demise of the church and the work of the gospel in our land, and instead of saying, this is a significant issue, let's address it, we kind of carry on. And make our minor tiny little changes rather than saying this situation requires us to think radically uh, differently the trouble is that when you push stuff under a carpet it never seems to say that does it it always seems to find a way of creeping out it's a not a good metaphor really is it (laughs) because how do things creep out from under a carpet well they do when it comes to problems and uh, issues. So for Nehemiah, uh, this was a big problem. And he's addressing three sets of complaints. Uh, Verse seven, those who simply didn't have enough food to live on. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. That's one group of complainants. The second is there in verse three, who have got property, but they're having to mortgage their property, their lands, their houses, in order to gain money that they can spend, then spend on food. Others were saying, verse three, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. There's a little reference to uh, the famine. And then there's a third group of complainants which is those who are having to borrow not only to pay for food but in order to pay the taxes that have been imposed upon them by uh, the leadership. So verse 4, still others were saying we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and villiards. Now I won't go into all the detail of which verse says what um, but what they were doing The people who were lending the money was charging interest. This was putting such a burden on the the people who were borrowing that they were even in some extreme cases having to sell their children into slavery. The wall is being built, glory, glory. But children had been sold into slavery amongst the people of God. And they're uh, charging interest on, um, on their loans. It's to Nehemiah's credit, I think, that in that circumstance, he does something about it. Uh, and it's there for us in verses 6 and 7. First of all, he heard their outcry. I've met too many leaders who don't hear the outcry. But he listened to those who had a cause for complaint. Uh, Verse six says he was very angry. Um, So much so, in other words, that his heart was moved. He got personally involved in the response to this issue. And verse seven says that I pondered them in my mind. In other words, he wasn't impulsive in the way that he responded. But he took time to reflect and to ponder before he accused the officials and before he called the entire community together to say, look guys, we've got an issue here. We're gonna have to sort it out. And I, I love the order which starts with listening that moves into feeling. I think leaders who can't empathize with the complaints of their people Well, there's a need to do that. Uh, Then he pondered, didn't act impulsively, and then he acted. So there's the first thing Um, in terms of the response of Nehemiah to a crisis is that he sees that there's a problem, he rolls up his sleeve, he faces it head on, and he brings it to a resolution. Does that sound familiar from what you've just heard? And the second thing he does is to start to rebuild this broken Maligned, out of sync culture amongst uh, the people. And the sense is here that um, truth has dawned for him. And he's going to invest, not just in the building of the wall now, but he's going to invest in what happens within the wall. And there are indications here that he's going to commit to the building of a healthy and godly culture amongst the people, um, which is always a task for church leaders and I'm looking to some of you uh, around uh, here this afternoon. Um, Church leadership is about culture setting. Uh, Church leaders more than anyone will set the culture, the norms, the values of the church that they are leading, but it's not solely for leaders. I think it's for all of us it's the collective act of God's people together uh, that will actually breed and produce a godly uh, culture Um, that we're collectively not just focusing on the walls but we're recognizing what's going on uh, amongst us why Um, and if you remember nothing else remember this it's who we are and how we live as the people of God which is much more important than what we do and what we achieve. You're allowed to say amen. (laughs) You're even allowed to say I disagree with you. Um, But there is a warning there, isn't there? Um, It's how we do things. It's the way in which we interact, which will certainly be as important as the walls that we build and the projects that we complete and I think we see here Nehemiah the culture builder Uh, Nehemiah starting a long-term project of making sure that there is a right culture now he's learned his mistake from his mistake and I think we see him wanting to build a culture which has got a number of different dimensions to it he wants to build a culture firstly that's pleasing to God When he gets the crowd together he says, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? He wants to build a a culture amongst God's people which is one that pleases God and that comes from a right fear of God. Secondly, he wants to build a culture that's faithful to God's word. Uh, You know, the other reason why Nehemiah is so angry about the charging of interest to borrowers is that God expressly forbids that um, in the pages of the Scriptures. So Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal, charge no interest. What were those last three words? Charge no interest. That's what the Word says. And Nehemiah wants to bring the people back to the word he wants to to set a culture and build a culture which is based upon God's word and where God's word infiltrates every aspect of the community's life together and thirdly he wants to build a culture that responds to the needs of the lowest and the least Um, is that another reason why Nehemiah is angry when he hears about interest being charged and people having to sell their children into slavery because these are the little ones who are suffering. These are the lowest and the least who are paying the worst consequences. And I think he's angry because his heart is breaking as he looks around and sees what his community, dare I say his church, is doing to the little and to the uh, least i think he wants to build a compassionate culture and maybe how we treat the poor maybe how we treat uh the little the least amongst us is the touchstone is the hallmark if you like of our authenticity as the people of god does that sound right we just charge on with the healthy and the well and the rich and the well endowed and the gifted being those that are in the mainstream and we let the little and the least drift to the edges then that will be a severe problem i think for the life of the church and then this culture also it's it's to be pleasing to god it's to be founded on god's word it's to respond to the needs of the lowest and the least and it's also to be freely chosen. <laughs> Do you like the way he brings everybody together? <laughs> and then he gets the priests in and he says, uh, Are you ready for this? And they freely and collectively say, Amen. The whole assembly, verse 13, said, Amen and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised an imposed culture is actually a subtle form of taking people into slavery. However that happens within the life of the church and God's people, a culture that's simply imposed rather than freely chosen by God's people is itself a form of slavery. So we see Nehemiah responding to the problem. We see him trying to rebuild a culture that's pleasing to God faithful to god's word responsive to the poor and freely chosen not imposed from on high and thirdly we see him walking the talk in his own life Um, and that's the whole of the final uh, section of this chapter verse 14 through to verse 19. i don't know about you but i found it very moving uh, to hear uh, that in other words here is a leader who doesn't begin to dare to ask other people to do what he himself is not committed to doing in his own life. And what's really impressive is that he seems to have been doing this for 12 years. So this is not a flash in the pan. This is who he is. Uh, And again, we're running out of time, but he tells us he never claimed the privileges that his predecessors as governor... Um, uh, of Israel had had claimed neither I nor my brothers verse 14 ate the food allotted to uh, the governor verse 15 he never taxed the people as his predecessors had tasked out of reverence for God I did not act like that says Nehemiah verse 16 he was so committed he says to working on the wall that he didn't build up his own personal wealth (laughs) buying more houses, buying more fields for himself. And this lovely picture in verse 17, 150 people for dinner. (laughs) Uh, He's got an open table, even tells you how many sheep and so on that that were were, were dedicated each day to feeding, and not just the in crowd, but feeding those who were visiting uh, Jerusalem. Are you still with me here? If we are at all critical of Nehemiah, (laughs) For letting this situation slip out of control on his watch. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, he redeems himself enormously in this chapter. In the way that he responds to the crisis. In the way that we see him resetting the culture of the people. And as we see him walking the talk in his own life. So what's God saying to you? How is God by his spirit, applying this to you in your family life, in your work life, in your ministry, in your leadership, whatever that form that might uh, take. I just want to say three things for Telford Minster in the briefest possible way. (laughs) Firstly, this. Let's never push the problems under the carpet. And all the people said that we are not a problem avoiding church. Because the reality is we will get it wrong. And we will get it wrong again and again. And those who are out there may be ready to fire their bullets at Telford Minster because we're not perfect. They're going to have plenty of targets to shoot at, okay? (laughs) Because we are not perfect. The church is always a school for sinners. It is never a society of saints. We're here because we're broken sinners and we've found a savior, but it does mean we'll keep getting it wrong. I remember David Hallett, when he was Bishop of Shrewsbury and he'd come from leading a big church in Manchester, once saying to me when I was vicar of Neil uh, Kevin, the thing about big churches, one of the only distinguishing things about big churches is that they have big problems. So don't think that when we grow, we become problem-free. We'll just generate bigger, more complicated problems. And there are a few sort of nods around. Um, So the wisdom in our church will will not be that somehow we manage to avoid problems. The mark of our wisdom will be in how we deal with them. Does that sound right? That we will not push them under the carpet. That we will listen as Nehemiah listened to the complainants, not with defensiveness, not with aggression, not with the sense that they must be wrong before ever we've listened to them. But we will listen and we'll draw on all the resources of grace and wisdom within our community in order to respond in a way that is appropriate. Does that sound right? That we will not be a problem avoiding church. And secondly this, that while, and there's no way of avoiding this because Matt's going to keep us focused on building that wall, okay? (laughs) And and there are church walls to build and there are kingdom walls to build. (laughs) There's so much to rebuild for the work of the kingdom here. Um, And absolutely right that we're about that, with every ounce of energy that we can bring to it, and until you know our knees are worn out in praying for God's kingdom to come in Telford, as it is in heaven. But friends, let's also, while we do that, look to the right and to the left, and invest into the ch- a church culture that is godly and biblical and compassionate and liberating. How does that sound, the kind of church you want to be? Godly, biblical, deeply compassionate and always liberating. We're not squeezing anybody into any mold whatsoever. We're inviting people to be fully themselves within this community that sets people free. And as I, Amen, I had an Amen from the vicar. Um, and as I said earlier, that's a leadership responsibility. It's a together responsibility as we build a culture here that oozes with godliness, that oozes with faithfulness, that demonstrates compassion in every part of our life and our being and that that, that dives fully into the provisions of pentecost (laughs) does that sound like the kind of church that you want to be a part of and friends we're going to need some culture watchers amongst us particularly while the leadership are focused on building the walls okay we're going to need some culture watchers um you, you know the little pithy definition of culture is the way we do things around here. The way we do things around here. Uh, and, and of course it therefore becomes so familiar, we think that's how, it might, that's how it ought to be. And the danger is that we lose any self-critical faculty. Um, so let's be culture watchers that we see this kind of church emerging. Because who we are, as I said earlier, as the people of God, will impact people more than our image, dare I say, more than our social media, more than our achievements, more than our wonderful new building. It's who we are as a community that oozes godliness and biblical faithfulness and deep compassion, and that is always setting people free. And thirdly, let's at Telford Minster. Make sure that in the power of the Spirit, we are doers of the word, all of us, and not just uh, speakers of the word. That like Nehemiah, uh, out of sight, out of view, when the rest of the culture is going down the drain in Jerusalem, he's keeping faithful. And let's be guardians, not just of the culture of the church, but of the priorities and the shape of our own discipleship. Why don't we stand?